Hi everyone and welcome to For Fact's Sake, the ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact-checking. I am your host, Ali Bryan, and alongside me, the Brian Cox of Big Chat, Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? I'm very well, Ali. I think that that probably doesn't count as alliteration, but we're a generous community here for fact's sake so i'm willing to give you um yeah just to keep the joke going thank you we'll let the listeners decide that through their um, comments or apathy so we've got a great podcast coming up this week haven't we we have an interview with lucy swinnon she is an editor at bellingcat the open source investigations unit um she's been talking to us all about open source investigation and how it's impacted the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict, current escalation, and potential limitations of that style of investigation. We also have a fact check to talk about, don't we, Paul? That's right, Ali. We're discussing your check from last week on a claim at the SNP's conference uh, about what Margaret Thatcher thought of Scottish independence. And on Paul's Curiosity Corner, we're discussing that story about French bedbugs, which I'm sure is keeping you all up at night. Yeah, so a uh, varied selection of things to talk about this week. So let's start off with Lucy Swinnon, shall we? Let's do it. My name's Lucy Swinnon. I'm an editor at Bellingcat. We're here today to talk about open source uh, research or open source intelligence, as it's sometimes known. Um, could you explain a little bit about how, about for our listeners, what open source intelligence is and how it helps organizations like Bellingcat to do their reporting? The term I would use is open source investigation, which basically means looking into open source information, anything online that's images, videos, a post in Telegram, what was known as Twitter, looking at anything online um, and basically investigating it. So we're kind of looking at the digital breadcrumbs we're finding little bits of um, evidence from images, videos, and putting it all, bringing it all together to investigate particular incidents. So Bellingcat's done that previously with MH17, where we looked at the shooting down of the Malaysian Airlines flight by Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine. Mm. We've done it to investigate chemical weapons attacks in Syria, or but we've also used it to investigate things like illegal wildlife traffic trafficking in the United Arab Emirates. So there's multiple different applications for open source investigation. Yeah. And obviously this is in terms of uh, like fact checking and um, uh, this sort of debunking, it's relatively new um, in terms of it's given investigators an ability to look beyond like maybe like state or bad actor narratives. I'm interested to see how, how that's been the case, particularly with relevance to the current Israel-Gaza conflict, because obviously there's not only the war on the ground and what's happening um, in militarily, there's also like a propaganda war that's happening online. So how does the open source element allow you to look past some of that propaganda? So for me, the big thing about open source investigation is it's see for yourself. Mm. So the idea is that we're taking evidence that is openly and freely available and we're using methods that people can replicate themselves. So for me, that's a really powerful way to undercut or to challenge any particular state or bad actor narratives. 
we're not in the game of going to governments to get their, you know, get their their take on their sourcing on something or yeah. we're taking the facts for ourselves. We're looking at the evidence that's available and we're not relying, not not relying on governments to give us information. So I think that's kind of quite a powerful way that open source can undercut, you know, we've used it in the past in different states, say the Syrian civil war previously. Mm. Um, you can use open source to look and see the evidence yourself without needing to go to the states and get information from, you know, state actors, bad, bad actors or people involved in the conflict. Yeah, definitely. I, I always, I think in terms of like open source investigation, that the two main kind of conflicts that I think about are obviously uh, the Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, and now the current uh, escalation of the Israel-Gaza conflict. I wondered if you could give us a sense of what role uh, open source uh, investigation has played over the last month or so. Similar to Ukraine, we've seen a huge amount of digital evidence being shared about mm. the conflict. So we've got images, we've got um, videos um flooding the space online and people making claims about them. So one early example of a Bellingcat story was to look at this kind of recycling of footage, which is a particular thing we see a lot with Israel-Palestine, where we've got mm. old footage being recycled and reused and claiming that it's um, evidence of current war crimes or current violations. Um, and we've yeah. got um, footage from other conflicts. So, for instance, in our recent piece we did about the disinformation, the misinformation spreading, we looked at a... Um, particular thing that was put out by a pro pro Syrian government um, outlet that showed um, that they claimed showed Israel bombing Gaza. That was also mm. picked up by the IDF Arabic spokesperson, for instance, to right. show this apparent um, Israel bombing of Gaza. But we actually geolocated it and matched it to a particular place in Syria, and it and it was found online from as early as 2021. So it was from a different conflict and from a different government. And yeah. the interesting thing about that is that it's actually obscuring what are genuine human rights violations and gen genuine things happening. So it's muddying of the water. And there's yeah. a lot of talk about, you know, with disinformation, this kind of origin where there's kind of this um, kind of Soviet area era propaganda system which was not just to tell a lie but to confuse the situation so that people don't know what the actual truth is and that's yeah. kind of what we're dealing with here yeah i think that's it's really interesting um talking about this uh pro-syrian uh, accounts as well is that further like uh the, the sort of normal internet user who's coming at, coming to this conflict with the viewpoint or is looking to find out information online particularly on particularly on x um would be a good place that people would go um like they might even not think that okay so there's syrian actors in this as well it's not just like pro you know and there's russian actors and there's and there's obviously western actors and there's all sorts of different um geopolitical viewpoints which are being used to as you say confuse the situation so it must be incredibly difficult for like the user to be able to know what who to trust and what who to like what accounts to actually look at yeah i think we're like we're on the cusp of this era where there's an overload of information Mm -hmm. And there's all these people that now have been able to manipulate the information and use it to their advantage. Um, and obviously that comes with, at the same time, where there's a lot of tr distrust in institutions. Yeah. So um, I guess the only kind of way forward that I see for that is people being critical and critically analysing information themselves and people being empowered that we no longer have these kind of everyone watch the six o'clock news and mm -hmm. take for read what, what they're told. But people are able to check for themselves what's being put online. And I think the 
um, having that kind of critical awareness that, you know, maybe you're you're particularly concerned about the um, potential violations happening in Gaza right now. Um, there's a lot of um, powerful evidence that's being posted online about the conflict, but being aware that some of it is being posted by bad actors or is being manipulated, and that um, in your quest to kind of investigate what you're particularly interested in, being aware that there are those actors that um, are actually muddying the waters. They're not actually helping your case. They're not helping you investigate what you want to find out about yeah. either violations on either side. Yeah, I think it goes, in some ways it goes back to that kind of classic thing that um, we, we in the kind of fact-checking community have been talking about for ages, which is like when you're dealing with a kind of rolling situation is that to not try and be first with you. You don't have to just get something online and immediately react to it. And there's been so much of that um, where people have been pushing to... Um, kind of have, have the first take on something. And I think particularly with the attack on the Al-Akhli hospital, my perception and the perception of like the open source investigation has always been, okay, this is a great positive thing where it's enabling us to look past and verify in situations where verification is difficult. But because there's been a sort of explosion of the amount of people doing this online and people presenting themselves as open source investigators, there's been a huge amount of disagreement on who caused that explosion yeah i wondered if you could explain what's happened there and has something gone wrong with the open source community in that instance so the al-ahli case was basically a explosion that occurred at the ho a hospital in gaza on october 17 um it was around 7 p.m um and basically almost immediately after that happened we had um accounts posting responsibility claims of responsibility about it and we already have a lot of coverage. So, for example, Al Jazeera was filming a live stream, not mm -hmm. right at that site, but Al Jazeera was filming a live stream around the time that that occurred. And in a very quick succession, we had these strong claims coming out. We saw, you know, protests at Israeli embassies around the world. Basically, the Israelis have said that Palestinian Islamic Jihad was responsible. It was a misfired rocket, while um, the uh, Palestinian authorities have said that it was an Israeli strike. You know, there's some interesting things about this case. For instance, that we had these big media outlets publishing on it very quickly and very authoritatively and saying yeah. that they'd done some sort of open source analysis, you know, making these quite clear claims. For example, the Al Jazeera report, they basically came out and had done their analysis and said they have found no grounds um, to show that it was a failed rocket launch from Gaza. And then we had the IDF holding a press conference where they showed this kind of audio, which they claimed uh, showed Palestinian militants discussing it, which they also presented where they believed the rockets were fired from, which they said conclusively showed that it came from Gaza. Um, yeah. And I think the main point here is that it's a very complex situation and we can't draw conclusions about that at this stage. That was basically... Bellingcat's analysis is here's some preliminary information, here's what our limitations are, and we're looking into it. And I think that's really where we got tripped up with the different um, analysis that were happening by these different accounts, by these media organisations, where they were drawing conclusions without um, ahead of, you know, really verifying things. And I think that's kind of where it got tripped up. Like, this case is also interesting because, for instance, often you'll see... Um, what's happened, say, with the Syrian chemical weapons attack, one um, element of that was finding the fragments. So often yeah. after a rocket attack, you have fragments, and that's a key piece of analyzing basically which rocket did this come from or, you know, who fired this. And in this case, we haven't seen physical evidence from the site, so the actual fragments, we haven't seen them. 
Um, so yeah, those are kind of some things that are going on with that that case. Yeah, well, that's it's really interesting. I think you yeah you've summed it up really well. But I think as I say because when I was like when we were looking through um, just following the case as it was going on, you've got um, supposed open source uh, analysis of footage from Al Jazeera. You've got it from the New York Times. You've got it from um, the uh, AP. You've got it from all sorts of accounts that are just not linked, not necessarily linked to um, mainstream news outlets, but are doing good work in general. One of the things that maybe slightly hamstrings open source in this. And one of these things is the fact that it's not physical. Like quite often it's done just through video footage that's open source, that's open source available. And when you're talking about fragments of um, missile, for example, like it's maybe sort of the sort of thing that needs people on the ground as well. And there needs to be kind of combination of all these things. And as you say, they're not only are these, they're just like these accounts wanting to be the first to, to ascribe blame. Cause that's, you know, effectively that's the kind of big win for some of these accounts. Like we've found out who did this rather than saying, this is really complicated and look at all this information. It's like, well, we've that's And in some ways that's almost the wrong approach and people should be a bit more like, should step back from it a bit more. Yeah. I think the point about people on the ground is really relevant because that's a limitation of open source, which if people don't acknowledge it, you know, like you've got to acknowledge your limitations when you're investigating something. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so you might investigate a story about a, um, a government and the government gives you no information, you go to them. So there's a limitation there because the government might know something, but they're not telling you, they're not going to give you any information. So you, you acknowledge that in your story. And that's the same with open source where, um, you know, a lot of open source now it's kind of done combined with like traditional reporting perhaps where people have people on the ground. Um, yeah. But in this case, um, for instance, some of these open source analysis that were done, like you said, they're not people with, they're, they're not people even with a team or they're not people with anyone on the ground. And so, and they're not acknowledging that. They're not saying, well, actually, we'd need additional physical evidence. You know, yeah. often in a Bellingcat story, you'll say, obviously, like, this is what open source tells us, but we, you know, we, we're not on the ground. We don't have that physical evidence. And that's an, another important part. Yeah, so I think that that's about acknowledging limitations. And I think some people might, there's, again, we talked about, like, uncertainty and people wanting to be certain about things. Um, people don't want to acknowledge a limitation in their method or in, in what they're writing about because they don't want to look weak, perhaps. So Ali, you sparked some controversy last week with your fact check about Margaret Thatcher's uh, views on independence. Mm. Can you explain what was claimed and why you checked it? Yeah, so it was the um, SMP conference last week. Um, and obviously a lot of the chat was around the new strategy that the SMP has for gaining independence. Essentially, the party is planning to aim for a majority of Scottish seats in the uh, next general election and then use that as a kind of bargaining tool to negotiate with the UK government to try and get a second referendum. Um, and if that doesn't work, then for the next uh, Scottish Parliament election, they are thinking about if they get a majority of seats in that, then using that as a sort of de facto referendum. Obviously, we're not uh, here to talk about that specific policy, but in order to sort of back it up, Deputy Leader of the SNP, Keith Brown, made a speech at the conference where he essentially sort of implied that Margaret Thatcher had admitted that that was a, a legitimate plan. 
His exact quote was, but the point is that Margaret Thatcher was explicit in recognizing the fact that if we win, the SNP win a majority of the seats at Westminster election, that is a mandate for independence. Um, that's not a particularly new claim. Um, there, it's a kind of formulation of a claim that's been made quite a lot and gone round on socials for quite a while. Um, there's been a meme that you see quite regularly that says, that uh, it alleges to quote Thatcher saying, Scotland does not need a referendum on independence. She just needs to send a majority of nationalist MPs to Westminster to have a mandate for independence. So kind of the same thing, essentially. Yeah, so slight reformulation of that quote. But could you find any mention of that in any of Thatcher's published output or any of her speeches or anything along those lines? No, so we spent a long time looking through her speeches and her interventions in Parliament, um, her various autobiographies and books on other things, um, and as many other of her like public speeches we could find. We couldn't find that formulation in that, any real formulation of that quote or the one that uh, Keith Brown mentions. Um, the closest thing we could find was from her autobiography, The Downing Street Years. Um, in that, she writes about Scotland having the right to national self-determination and says that thus far they've exercised that right by joining and remaining in the union. Then she says, quote, should they determine on independence, no English party or politician will stand in their way, however much we might regret their departure. What the Scots, nor indeed the English cannot do, is insist upon their own terms for remaining in the union regardless of the views of others. Yeah, so that's about as close as we could find. And that's um, a quote that has been used in part by the Scottish government before, but we couldn't find the quote that has been going around and that's mentioned by Keith Brown. So do you have any idea where that could have come from, that claim? Is it potentially from that meme you discussed earlier, or is it just sort of a misremembering of something that Thatcher did say, but that didn't really back mm. up the claim that Brown said? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And we did we couldn't find a, a kind of actual source for that, like a full a 100% source for that quote. Um, it's possible that it's a sort of, it's like manglerized various different quotes. So like, like her quote yeah. in that book. And also there's a quote from one of her former Scottish ministers, Lord Michael Scythe. And in 2015, he told the BBC, he said, when I was in government, we used to say that if the Scots want independence, the SNP needed a majority of seats in Scotland. There's also been similar quotes, kind of similar quotes that have been attributed to uh, Lord Britain as well, but we can't find Thatcher saying it. So yeah, it's possible that it's just been, it, it, it's a sort of a statement of the general mood that was around in Thatcher's time. And then it's been sort of transformed to be her directly quoted saying it, but we couldn't find that. Yeah, there seems to be a bit of Mandela effect stuff going on mm, here where people yeah. sort of, because there's a lot of people saying on socials that they remembered her saying it um, and that maybe we hadn't found evidence of it, but that they all remembered her saying it and it being published, yeah. publicised at the time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, this one, I think, in some ways. Um, I noticed you went for an unsupported verdict instead of just flat-out false. Yeah. Can you explain a wee bit why that was? Fundamentally, when, when you're going, when you're doing something like this, um, and it's about something that someone's allegedly said or that someone's allegedly done, in some situations like this, you can't actually say for sure that she didn't say it. Obviously, not everything she's ever said or done is available publicly. It's possible she may have said it privately, and then it was reported, you know, as reported speech by somebody. There's all sorts of possibilities about how she could have said it in some formulation. What we don't have is any evidence for her saying it. So instead of it being false, us saying she definitively never said that, what we're going with is unsupported, which is that there's no evidence to suggest that she did say it.
Welcome listeners to Paul's Curiosity Corner. This week, Ali, I'm sure, like everyone else, you've been frantically preparing for the upcoming influx of French bedbugs into Scotland. If you haven't heard this news, it's that there has been a considerable uptick, if you'll pardon the pun, in the amount of bedbugs found in the boudoirs of Paris. And those bedbugs could be heading north, as far as we can tell. But like many crises these days, there's been a lot of disinformation spread about the bedbugs on social media. Can you explain why, Ali, and give one particular example of that disinformation? Yeah, so uh, this like bed bugs panic uh, has been leading to quite a lot of comment and analysis. A lot of it seems to be shared across social media and being almost perpetuated by social media shares. One of the claims that's reared its head recently is that the current bed bugs problem in France has been partly caused by sanctions on Russia, which is possibly a mm. bizarre connection. Um, yes. The claim goes that the sanctions France has put in place uh, in relation to Russia's invasion of Ukraine mean that certain ingredients in insecticides, which are used to control bed bugs, are now missing from these insecticides, making them less effective, which means that bed bugs have been allowed to thrive. So is there any truth to the claim that sanctions on Russia were behind the bed bug panic? No, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, so the article that seems to have been cited repeatedly both directly in terms of screenshots and also on various telegram channels and others um is from a daily newspaper called la montagne that's been shared on social media um that basically is connecting these two things together that a fake article that says it's because of these um things that were in the the insecticides that we're now suffering from this bed bug uh, infestation that is a fake article in terms of that, that screenshot is not correct. And the paper themselves confirmed that they didn't do an article like that. And there's nothing online from their website or anything. And it seems to be according to some of the experts that are dealing with this, that bed bugs have been present in France since way before the invasion of Ukraine. And it yeah. seems like the current panic around bed bugs obviously is not because of a huge significant like spike that's just happened. It's been more of a sort of gradual increase with spikes every year at certain times of the year and we're currently in the, the time of year where the bed bugs appear to spike in in france and according to other experts and um, afp um, who have been fact checking this um there are i mean no changes in the ingredients of common insecticides linked to sanctions on russia so it just seems to be completely false and on this podcast, we like to give practical advice about how people can avoid falling into these forms of disinformation. So how can mm. you spot that a story claiming to come from a renowned news outlet is is actually a fake? Yeah, there's a few ways. I mean, first of all, I would always say just from the easiest thing to do when you see a screenshotted article would be just Google the headline along with the name of the news outlet. So if you see an article that's allegedly from the BBC, just look at the, yeah, just Google the keyword in the headline with, with the news article. You'll then find out if there is an online version that's actually from the website. I mean, obviously it's possible in some situations the articles can be deleted or the headlines can be changed after publication, but you should at least get a sense of whether or not this has been reported by the outlet that's claimed to have reported it, but also if it's been reported by other sources which you trust. That could be enough, really, if you don't find it anywhere, but then also you can do things like look at an actual article from the site and then compare it to the screenshot article there might be stuff like the way the images are used might be slightly different you know for example it wouldn't have a subtitle or they might have an author byline name that you don't recognize and you can google that and find out they don't work for them or stuff like the grammar and style the style or the grammar might not be the same as is regularly used in that publication so there's a few different ways 
you can uh, verify articles that are screenshotted. Fundamentally, the easiest way of doing it is just to Google the keywords and see if the article exists. That's all I've got time for for this week's episode of For Fact's Sake. Thanks so much to Lucy for coming on and sharing her uh, insights. Um, be sure to go to Bell and Cat and check out their various guides for open source investigation. They're incredibly useful, uh, not just for journalists, but for anybody looking to delve a little bit deeper and do their own research around um, some of the information coming out of that conflict. Paul, if people want to get us on social media, if they want to share this podcast with their mates, what can they do? They can go to X um, and find us at Ferret Scott. Uh, we're also obviously on Facebook, Instagram, various other places that I can't remember right now. And we've also, of course, got our community forum, community.theferret.scot, where we're waiting to interact with readers and listeners. Um, and of course, it'd be great if you can give us five stars on wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast far and wide. Exactly. And always remember, you can get in contact with us directly. Factcheck at the ferret Scott Scott is the email if you want to send us fact check suggestions or any, you know, interview suggestions or anything about the podcast or our fact checking work in general. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.